Hello and welcome to Occupied Thoughts, a podcast brought to you by the Foundation for Middle East Peace. I'm Peter Beinart, non-resident fellow at the Foundation for Middle East Peace. Today is December 29th, 2022, and I'm delighted to be here with Ziv Stahl for a conversation about what the new Israeli government might mean for Israeli control over Palestinian lives and land in the West Bank. Ziv Stahl is the executive director of the Israeli NGO Yeshteen. Prior to becoming executive director, Ziv served as director of the Yeshtin Research Department for 11 years, during which he authored significant reports, including a life exposed, military invasions of Palestinian homes in the West Bank in 2020, and mock enforcement, law enforcement on Israeli civilians in the West Bank in 2015. She is a board member of both Zazim Community Action and Akavot Institute for Israeli Palestinian Conflict Research and holds an MA in Political Science from Tel Aviv University. For those who are unfamiliar with Yeshtin, it is an organization that documents Israel's systematic human rights violations in the West Bank and has been involved in many high-profile court cases on behalf of Palestinians. You can read more about Yeshtin on their website, yesh.dean.org. Uh, today, uh, I want to talk to Ziv about what she expects to see under the new Israeli government. Um, Ziv, thanks so much for being with us. Um, the um, Benjamin Netanyahu's new government seems now in place. It seems like we know which people will hold which ministries and have which authorities. So I wonder if you could just start with a bit of an overview of what you think will be different um, because of this new government in terms of the way Israel controls the West Bank. Okay, first of all, thank you for having me and hi. Um, I would say, broadly speaking, we are facing a dramatic change in the way Israel controls the West Bank. Uh, not something that we've seen before, Reading through the coalition agreements, I think that's the most telling uh, documents we have right now in regards to the intentions of the Israeli government, new government. And I think I can point out three main areas that we're talking about dramatic change in. Uh, the first and the most, uh, I would say, extreme change would be uh, the way Israel controls the West, the West Bank. Uh, we are talking about full annexation of the West Bank. Uh, we, have talking, we have been talking about calling annexation or creeping annexation and uh, de facto annexation for many years now, but we are talking uh, on increased uh, measurements of annexation and also the Jew annexation, formal annexation of the West Bank. Uh, so I can expand a little bit more about that later if you want. The second thing I would mark as a uh, dramatic change is the expansion of settlements. We have been, again, we've been watching expansion in settlements for many years, but uh, this is much more dramatic with a lot of budgets and uh, uh, even incentives for settlers to come and live in the West Bank for Israelis to come and settle in the West Bank. And we're talking about uh, roads and the improvement of uh, life quality for settlers so it will be easier for them to live there and a better connection to Israel. Uh, the sovereign Israel for uh, settlers. And the third part I would uh, talk about uh, would be um, a broad title of, uh, of accountability. And that uh, has two main uh, 
holds to it. One would be accountability or lack of accountability for Israeli civilians. And the second one, uh, lack of accountability for uh, military or uh, security personnel uh, harming Palestinians in many forms and ways. So that would be the three. Uh, on top of that, we can also add, of course, the shrinking uh, democratic space in Israel, uh, the danger for uh, organizations such as ourselves, such as Yashdin and others, uh, and uh, the weakening of the high court in Israel and many other institutions which are meant to uh, supervise the government and limit steps. Thanks. So let's start with, with the first. A couple of years ago, there was all of this discussion in the media about the idea that the Israeli government would annex the West Bank formally. Um, and uh, then that was kind of derailed as part of an agreement that led to the Abraham Accords. Um, so explain why you see this as full annexation. And does this differ in any way to what seemed to be on the table? Uh, I think it was in, in 2020 or so when it seemed like that was, you know, that was front page news for everybody. So first and foremost, there is a very explicit uh, clause within the agreement with uh, Smutrich, with uh, the um, uh, religions, religious uh, Zionism movement, uh, that says that they're going to uh, to inflict the Israeli sovereignty over the West Bank, which means annexation. Uh, for those who's less uh, uh, familiar with the legal terms, that means applying the Israeli law over the West Bank which doesn't apply there right now, there is a military law in the West Bank. So this is the first indication, but we have many others. There is the uh, transfer of the authorities over the civil administration and uh, COGAT to uh, another minister within the Ministry of Defense. Uh, this minister will be uh, one of, uh, maybe Smotrich and maybe someone else from his uh, uh, party. So uh, there is also that it's like civilizing uh, a body which is military in essence right now and changing the shift because in occupation regime, the army is supposed to run the business. The army is the sovereign or the replacement of the sovereign while there's occupation. Once you take those authorities and the civil administration is in charge of every aspect of uh, life in the West Bank, especially for Palestinians, but also for settlers, you take that and you put it under a civilian uh, ministry, an Israeli uh, government ministry. That means occupation as well. And we see many other aspects. Uh, for example, taking out the legal advisor uh, of the West Bank from the army, also transferring them into uh, a civil body within the government, uh, creating a new office in the, in the government, which is the national missions, office, which is in charge for settlements and expanding settlements. And of course, uh, controlling the narrative uh, by various means that, that are specified in the agreements, the, the historic narrative and the affiliation of the West Bank to Israel and to the Zionist uh, story. And maybe last step I will mention in this part, uh, the retroactively authorization of all illegal construction outposts and uh, shepherding outposts and uh, illegal neighborhoods in the West Bank, which is also 
suggesting Israel wish, wishing to be uh, permanent, uh, uh, in permanent control over the West Bank and um, not, not treating the, its stay in the West Bank as a temporary thing like the occupation regime is meant to be. So uh, all of those, putting all of those together, you can see that Israel is uh, more and more and, and even officially uh, starting to treat the West Bank as if it's part of the sovereign part, um, area of Israel. So help explain why what this actually changes on the ground. Um, as you were saying, you know, Israel conquers the West Bank in 1967. Um, uh, it annexes East Jerusalem, but the rest of the West Bank um, is under the control of the Israeli military. Uh, Palestinians are uh, subjects of the Israeli state and the Israeli military, but not but cannot become citizens of Israel. Israelis Israelis who move into the West Bank remain Israeli citizens, um, but the 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 control over the West Bank is supposed to be in the hands of the Israeli military because it's an occupied territory separate from Israel proper. And now you're saying that a lot of those functions are being transferred from the Israeli military to the civilian Israeli is civilian Israeli control. But Israel has been controlling this territory already. Um, uh, the Israeli military can go wherever it wants. It's under Israeli control. So how does this annex this annexation, this shift from this being under the control of the Israeli military to this being under the control of Israeli civilians? Um, uh, it obviously Palestinians obviously remain subjects they they can't become citizens they they're not governed by israeli civil law so what is the practical impact of of this change so first of all uh, palestinians uh, as i said are not uh, civilians and they are not voting to and they're not electing israeli governments so once the israeli government is the body that is in charge and controls there's also uh, changes on the ground, but also in the more declarative uh, fashion that Israel uh, controls the West Bank. And this is something very important because the army or the military commander is supposed to consider also sorts of considerations for the benefit of the local population, which is the Palestinians. Once we're talking about Israeli government, they are not obliged to that uh, um, commitment. So they can also only uh, consider uh, Israeli civilians' uh, benefit and on, not other considerations. So this is one. Second of all, I think on the ground, we are talking about uh, retroactive, re retroactively authorizing all the legal construction and outposts. Uh, we need to uh, talk about land can you, can, you, on, can you just tell people, for people who may not be familiar, what is an, uh, what is an outpost? What is a legal, how does it differ from a settlement? Sure. So uh, settlement, maybe let's start with something broader. All settlements are illegal under international law. In Israel, settlements are not considered illegal if they were established uh, by uh, a decision or created by a decision made by the government, the Israeli government. Outposts are uh, settlements that were established without this authorization, without uh, an approval or decision by the Israeli government. So they are considered illegal even under Israeli law. As, as I said, everything is illegal under international law. But in Israel, we have this uh, differentiation. Also, our posts are to, considered temporary. Do you want to say something quickly, just people? Why are settlements illegal under international law? Why is it illegal to, to move populations into a territory that you have taken 
control of in war. Okay, this is a bit heavy, and uh, I want to just stay to the record that I am not a lawyer, but I do know how to answer. Uh, so international law views the, the whole framework of occupation as a temporary one, not as a permanent one. And uh, the occupying power, which is Israel, is supposed to act in those territories as the trustee. It just maintains the, the land uh, in a temporary manner until there will be an agreement, until some sovereign can come and take charge over the land. This is why you cannot make long-term uh, changes in the occupied territory and many, many others. Specifically about settlements, uh, we have a specific uh, uh, prohibition in international law, which uh, prohibits the occupying power to transfer population to the occupied territory. That means that Israel cannot transfer uh, population. The interpretation of this uh, um, um, prohibition, which became very uh, established uh, through the years, is not only that Israel cannot forcibly, forcibly transfer population, it cannot uh, encourage uh, Israeli citizens to move there and to uh, allow them to do so. Israel, as we know, gives a lot of incentives also today to settlers to come and live in the West Bank. It protects them, it provides them with infrastructures and many, many other ways that allows them to settle there. So this is why settlements are illegal by international law. Okay, sorry for that diversion. So, mm -hmm. so there are settlements and then there are these outposts that were built even without the approval of the Israeli government, unlike exactly. regular settlements. Um, and you're saying that there's going to be a shift in the status of these of these outposts. Exactly, uh, it is the intention of the of many Israeli governments to authorize or retroactively authorize these outposts and to turn them into legal uh, settlements or neighborhoods of, of existing settlements in many many ways. And this is a slow and graduate process that we've seen for a few years now. Now they want to make it uh, very clear, they have it in the agreements, this is going to happen. Uh, they have tried to do it before, I don't know if you are familiar with the regularization bill that was uh, passed in the Knesset. Uh, Yashdin and other organizations has petitioned to the High Court of Justice about this uh, uh, law, and eventually, eventually it was deleted because uh, uh, the High Court of Justice decided that it is, it is an illegal to uh, authorize the outpost that way. Uh, so there's few ways the government can do it. It can do it uh, one by one, finding an, a legal excuse, and I'm doing airports to those who doesn't see me, uh, using some kind of twisted, uh, twisting the, the legal tools in order to make it look as if it's kosher. And another way is to uh, legislate again after they uh, pass the, the override uh, clause, uh, which allows the Knesset to basically overcome uh, a ruling of the High Court, which uh, uh, overrules laws or denies laws. So they can go either way, but that this is something they really are anxious to do, and we are kind of certain they are going to do it. Um, maybe something important to remember is that a lot of this, uh, these illegal outposts uh, either sit completely or par partially on uh, private Palestinian land. And not only that they are built on, on private land, they are also, they have control over border uh, 
part of lands, usually agricultural lands that Palestinians are aspiring sometimes or even succeeding to cultivate. Uh, so this has a large effect, and also we know that uh, settlements and outposts has the tendency of growing, they're not staying the same over the years. So once uh, a place like that is uh, is getting an authorization, we'll also get budgets and uh, possibilities to grow more and more and to take over more and more land. This also interferes with the ability of Palestinians to move around the West Bank, of course, it kind of cuts the West Bank into parts, different parts that are disconnected from one another. It inflicts uh, their lives because, because of security measures. If there's uh, settlements, there must be roads, there must be other infrastructure that serves the settlers. So this harms and affects the, the life of Palestinians on the ground in many, many ways. Do you have a, a a sense of, for people like Betzalel Samotrich, who will be the who will be the finance minister, others in the government who are um, dedicated to increasing settlements, to author, to retroactively legalizing these outposts, to basically increasing the Israeli settler population and its domination and control over the West Bank more and more. What their long-term vision is for the territory and for Palestinians there, it seems to me, as you're saying, this is a situation in which you're 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 restricting Palestinians in the West Bank to less and less territory, making their lives and their possibility for to have you know to have lively an economic livelihood more and more impossible. Do you think there is a longer term vision here for what these people ultimately want to do with the Palestinian population in the West Bank? Um, it's a good question. They don't tell us, so let's start with that. Uh, but I would say two, two or three things. One is that uh, I think their wet dream, if I can say that, uh, is that Palestinians will just uh, outroot and immigrate from the West Bank to Jordan or abroad to other places, and will and that, and that there will be less and less Palestinians on the ground. And we've seen that happening already. And uh, a lot of what uh, Israel, uh, as an authorized power, but also settlers, are inflicting to Palestinians is with the goal in mind that they want them out of there. So this is one. They want as less uh, Palestinians there as possible. Uh, the other would be point would be that uh, I think when we ask that, we need to ask what is Smotrich and Benvi and others are plan planning for Israel uh, entirely because I don't think they care so much about Israel being a democracy, about Israel uh, protecting human rights or any other thoughts that we become so used to think of Israel as something at least that Israel aspires to be. Uh, they don't care about those things. So um, I think this is where we, it might be going and if they succeed, probably going. Uh, maybe another word that we didn't mention yet, but should be mentioned in this context is apartheid, because right now we have been at least uh, issued um, a legal opinion a few years ago, uh, stating that there is apartheid in the West Bank. Now, we didn't talk about Israel because we have no expertise and no mandate to explore what's going on in Israel. So we focus on what we know, and we know the West Bank, stating that there is uh, apartheid regime, regime within the West Bank. I think that if all their plans will come true and there will be annexation, the annexation will be of a type, of a certain type, and the type is of apartheid. 
because then you will look at one territory with, uh, I don't know how to say it, one regime and one territory with different classes uh, uh, that the, the regime is aspiring to maintain, which means that Israel will aspire to maintain uh, Jewish or Israeli supremacy over the Palestinians. And this is, a, I, I think, a nightmare for all of us and what we hope won't come true. But if you ask me what their vision is, I think they don't care that would be the case. You mentioned earlier that one shift that's taking place is that control over the West Bank is being transferred from the military to civilian leadership. Although, of course, the military will still be presumably in the West Bank, you know, <clears throat> um, enforcing its will over Palestinians. But, and you mentioned that the military is supposed to under the law of occupation, a military is supposed to take account of the people in an occupied territory, in this case, the Palestinians, in its behavior, whereas civilian administration only needs to worry about its own citizens, meaning who are the Israeli settlers, not the Palestinians. But practically, will this make a difference? I mean, was the Israeli military actually taking into account the concerns of Palestinians in its behavior? Will this, this shift towards decisions being made by, by civil administration instead of the military actually mean that Israel treats Palestinians differently? Of course, I agree with you that uh, the, the military does not always consider the benefit of the local population or Palestinians in the West Bank. And, in many cases, twisted uh, twist the reality in order to make it look as if they consider that, but uh, mainly uh, uh, is concerned about the benefit of the settlers or Israel, uh, or even its own. But uh, I think right now there is some limitations to that. Once you move it to a civilian uh, framework, you don't have these uh, limits at all, and you don't have these checks and balances at all not even for appearance, which is important, not important as being uh, behaving well, but is important uh, to the way things are in the West Bank, even in the small uh, individual cases that you see sometimes. So the army sometimes uh, works uh, for some benefit of the uh, local populations, and sometimes it doesn't, mostly maybe it doesn't, but still you have these kind of islands where they do uh, worry about uh, the welfare of the uh, Palestinians. And our prediction is once it's not no longer uh, something they are obliged to, things can always get worse. Maybe this is the starting point for the whole conversation. Things are very bad right now, but they can all also get really worse. I wanted to ask you about, in that regard, the the the, the courts. So one of the things that um, uh, this new government wants to do is to limit the ability of the courts to to have oversight over over the government. Um, um, how will that affect the Palestinian rights? Again, I'm sure many, many Palestinian activists would say that the courts have not really been very very effective in 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 protecting their rights to begin with. So what difference will it make? For in terms of Palestinian rights, if the if the court's ability to oversee what uh, what the government does in the West Bank is is restricted. So of course I agree that uh, the court does not give remedy to most cases, and especially not um, rejecting the 
the majority of uh, policies that Israel is inflicting in the West Bank. But we also need to keep in mind a few things. One is that Palestinians are still going to the courts in Israel and are still looking for a remedy from them. And the second one is that Palestinians, as I said before, they are not part of the Israeli political game. They are not voting and they are not electing the governments. But the governments are the one who's deciding about their fates and, and, and about, their, about their lives. So once you shut this door, there is nowhere to go, basically. This is the last resort for, uh, resort for um, Palestinians to um, address Israeli authorities when they uh, think that something, that some wrong has been done to them. On, or when Israel is, uh, is um, acting in an unlawful way or when Israel is uh, acting in, in um, um, I lost the word in English, so, sorry, um, random way and, and uh, cannot justify its actions. So this is the last door they can knock on. Once you close this door, they really don't have anywhere to get justice from. And this is dramatic, even for the, the sense that you can get your voice heard. Even if you will be denied, still you had your day in court, it's something uh, to remember. And uh, also for us, because the, the hearings in the high court in, in, in the, on the other courts in Israel also allows us to get information and to expose uh, these establishments and their being complicit to the Israeli uh, control mechanisms. So uh, even if we are denied in court and uh, we don't win or lose in court, if you will, still we get something from those hearings. We get information and we get uh, exposure. And sometimes the, the world is watching and uh, Israelis are watching and seeing what the courts are uh, enabling the Israeli governments to do uh, in the West Bank. And that's important. You are muted. Um, you may have seen the, that there was um, that Bezalel Smotrich, uh, the leader of the National Religious Party, who will be in charge of the finance ministry, wrote an, uh, um, a column in the Wall Street Journal um, yesterday where he tried to make the case to Americans that this new government is not um, is actually making Israel more democratic or at least just making it more efficient is not actually changing things in, in a way that anyone should be concerned about. And I wanted to read you something in particular that he talks about, about what the government is going to do in area C of the West Bank, the area where Israel now has complete control and, 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 and Palestinians, it's very difficult for Palestinians to, to live. And this is what he writes, and maybe you can just kind of interpret this, uh, you know, uh, translate this from kind of um, uh, his language into, uh, into, the, into language that people can understand. He writes... <clears throat> We seek to halt the execution of the Fayyad Plan, a massive European Union funded project to facilitate the Palestinian takeover of Area C, the one part of Judea and Samaria where Jews are currently permitted to live under the Oslo Accords. The authority is building housing infrastructure and more in areas that are outside its jurisdiction to surround Jewish communities and other strategic locations in Area A in an attempt at de facto annexation. Then he goes on, says, this unrestrained usurpation 
Horus poses mortal dangers to Israelis living there and risks significant damage to the natural environment and to historical sites. So it's really quite a remarkable statement, right, in which he's essentially <laughs> making it sound the, the, the people who are having their rights denied and who are being occupied are the Israeli settlers. But what does he mean when he talks about this Fayyad plan and, and this idea that, um, uh, that, that Palestinians are now building somehow kind of illegally in Area C of the West Bank? I just want to quickly say that if you change the uh, the names Palestinians and Israelis there, we can sign on this uh, as a text <laughs> of our own, kind of. I mean, he, they, that's what they're doing. They're like uh, uh, shifting things over. So, or twisting things over. So in, in our eyes, and I think all of the international community agrees with us, Israel is the occupier of the West Bank. And uh, even Area C, which under Oslo uh, is uh, left under the Israeli control, it doesn't mean that it's settlement land, and it doesn't mean that it's meant for is for the uh, for being part of Israel. It means, as I said before, that Israel is temporarily keeping this until uh, Israel and the, and the Palestinians reach reaches a final agreement, and then Israel was supposed to uh, leave even Area C, and let the Palestinian uh, state be built, right? So what you're doing is twisting it around. They're treating Area C as if this is settlement land or Israeli land. We can do, we Israelis can do whatever we want in this area. And now and the Palestinians- 60% of the West Bank, right, Area C. 60%, right. yeah. And, and Palestinians are now considered the invaders. And the, uh, uh, everything they do there is considered illegal because Israel dictates what's happening in the West Bank, what is illegal construction and what is legal construction. And this is just twisting everything around. Even if we, we are talking about uh, the heritage uh, sites, as he talks about the archeological sites in the West Bank and so on, this is something that Israel is now in charge of because of Oslo. We have uh, the officer of the archeology span under the civil administration. And he's supposed to watch over these sites again until there is a final agreement. That doesn't mean that these are Israeli archaeological sites. Even if they if they have Jewish history in them, still the responsibility is not supposed to be of Israel once the occupation is over. Right. Um, so Benjamin Netanyahu has been going around in the U.S. giving interviews to very sympathetic media, and one of the things that he says. Uh, repeatedly is, um, I'm going to be in charge of this government. So essentially, um, don't worry, because nothing very radical is going to happen because I'm the ultim ultimately the one making uh, making the decisions. I'm wondering how, how you respond to that. First of all, I think I get why he wants to calm everyone down, because this is really scary. Um, maybe two answers can be, uh, one of the options might be right. One uh, is that he's, he is a liar and he's not going to keep the agreement he signed with his partners. And the other one is that he's very weak politically in Israel. And basically uh, the fact that he got to sign these agreements and to promise all these, these uh, things to his partners shows that he's very weak. And what he gives us any guarantee that he will not continue to be weak uh, and uh, will not be able to stop all these measurements. 
Another thought is that I don't know how much he rejects and uh, objects to these uh, steps. Hmm. We don't know where he stands ideologically with many of the steps that we're talking about. Yeah. So obviously, the the by far the greatest danger in all this is to Palestinians, particularly Palestinians who live in the West Bank or not even citizens of the country that controls their lives. Um, but as, as you mentioned at the beginning, there also are uh, risks to uh, those Israelis who support Palestinian rights, uh, like, like in Yeshdin. Um, so talk a little bit about how this new government may restrict your ability to do human rights work. So first of all, there is a clause in, within the Ben Gvir, uh, Jewish Power uh, Party, uh, saying that they're going to legislate within, uh, I think, 180 days, a law that uh, taxes uh, um, organizations. They have a way of differentiating between the organizations so that it's only uh, left organizations and specifically human rights organizations not only dealing with the occupied territory, I guess also uh, uh, NGOs that deals with uh, refugees and uh, work seekers uh, in Israel, where uh, work uh, migrants. So uh, that is going to happen. This taxation can mean for us and for organizations like us, a very challenging uh, way to, or it will be very challenging to even survive and of course to keep operating. Uh, it means that uh, we all get funded and sometimes the majority of the funding comes from uh, what the government is calling foreign entities, which means uh, European states, it means the, the European Union, the UN and many other uh, international bodies. Uh, so if that gets uh, taxated, first of all, we lose a lot of money on the way. Second of all, it makes it very hard for these countries and these institutions to keep funding us because the, uh, the taxation means that the tax money goes to the state treasury. Mm. And that means foreign aid. So they do not want to do that. So it puts a question mark on their ability to even give us the money. Second of all, we have seen, uh, and maybe just another thing, is that that can bring to uh, basically shutting down many organizations. And that's a real danger. Uh, being the watchdog in the, uh, of what's going on in the West Bank, being the eyes and the, the monitoring uh, bodies of Israel is doing, what is Israel is doing in the West Bank, we are needed. Second of all, uh, we have already seeing the start or the beginning or the um, um, renewal of the uh, campaigns against the organizations, uh, tagging us as a complicit to terror, uh, tagging us as anti-Israeli, tagging us as um, traitors, and so on. And that is, I assume, going to increase and increase against, against us. Uh, first of all, in order to get public support for uh, uh, closing the organizations and making it out for us to, to survive. And second, second of all, once we are attacked, we have to protect ourselves. And that is keeping us busy from what we are meant to do, which is uh, to assist Palestinians and to protect human rights of Palestinians in the West Bank. 
have um, members, staff and members of the SGN already faced physical threats? Uh, I wouldn't say directly physical threats, but we do see a lot of um, incitement. Uh, if you look in our social media, you will see the reactions and the, the comments that we get. Uh, so that, of course, yeah. I mean, there are there are countries that we can see them in Eastern Europe or in Russia that have managed to successfully shut down their human rights organizations. Um, do you think it's possible that you know, in five or 10 years, uh, there will be a, a climate in Israel in which it's essentially impossible for organizations like Yeshtin or B'Tselem and others to exist? Unfortunately, yes. I'm not sure what will happen, but yeah, I can see a possibility for that. We've witnessed in the passing year the shutting down of Palestinians, you know, uh, human rights organizations, and the invasion of uh, military uh, to their offices, confiscating equipment and um, yeah, I think it's re it really worries us. And we feel, you said in 10 years, maybe five years, we feel that the, the slope is very slippery and this is happening very, very fast, everything. So I think we are all very much overwhelmed with the new governments, its, um, its general lines and the specifics of the agreements and the declaration, the public declaration it makes. So that happened really fast. Um, so yeah, there is a reason to worry, I would say. And um, I guess this is the last question, but under these circumstances in which the, the possibility for, um, for basic human rights for Palestinians seems more distant than it has, uh, you know, more distant than ever, um, and in which, Israeli public opinion has clearly moved further and further away from the kind of equality rights-oriented values that you and Yestin um, uh, hold. What, um, what do you see as the, the thing that keeps you doing this work under these uh, extremely, increasingly bleak circumstances? Good question. <laughs> I think it's very individual, like each of us has an, a different kind of uh, inner motor that keeps us going. Uh, I can say that for me, I don't have the privilege to, to ignore it in a way. And maybe I feel better when I feel like I can do something, even if it doesn't work, even if it's very um, repeating in a way. And it maybe feels sometimes lost, but there is something optimistic about, um, at least in my point of view, about getting up in the morning and feeling that you're trying to make it a better place. Uh, for Israelis, I think this is done on our behalf. This is our uh, um, country. This is our army, for example, or government, even if we didn't elect them. Uh, so we have... We don't have the privilege to say, wow, this is too much. This is very hard. I, I can't deal with it. Uh, so at, at least that's the way it is for me. And another thing which is much more selfish is that it's, it's, it's very interesting. It's a, an interesting um, issue to, to explore and to, to deal with. You meet a lot of uh, great people and that's also satisfying and nice. Mm. Um, 
Well, I would just say as someone as a, someone who deeply admires what you do and what Yeshdeen does, I, I think it also um, has a very important effect um, for Jews in the diaspora, um, who um, uh, who those who have progressive values who who may increasingly grow profoundly alienated from Israel. Um, I think it's very very important for for those people, especially younger people, to be able to see. Uh, not just identify with Palestinians uh, who are struggling for their rights, but to, to be able to identify and see Israeli Jews, um, um, because it creates a form of connection um, that's built on shared democratic values um, and, uh, and, um, uh, and, and makes it easier for people to struggle here uh, in solidarity, because Americans can say, and American Jews can say, well, if people like Ziv have not given up, then we shouldn't give up either. We have an obligation to struggle in solidarity with them. So I think that also keeps alive something for those of us around the rest of the world that's very, very precious. Yeah, I think it's in, on, in the same way as we feel the solidarity for uh, Palestinians and we meet Palestinian uh, victims of offenses and people who got their land taken and many others. And in a way we feel like we are, we have to. That's our solidarity act to for them, in a way. Yes, yes. And I think people who are doing the work that you're doing are, you know, in the tradition of the prophets, in the sense that the prophets were not popular, um, and, and many of them did not see their moral cries heeded in, in their time. Um, and, and, and yet the, the work was, was profoundly important nonetheless. Um, yeah. um, so, um, Thank you, Ziv, so much for sharing your time uh, and your analysis. Thank you. um, and thank you to our listeners for tuning in to this episode of Occupied Thoughts. Please make sure to check out the FMVP website, fmvp.org, for resources related to this podcast and lots of other great content related to Palestine and Israel. And please make sure you're subscribed to this podcast to stay up to date. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Spotify. And you can also watch video versions of our podcast, including this one on YouTube. And with that, I'm Peter Beinart signing off until the next episode of FMVP's Occupied Thoughts. Mm -hmm.